Hello, listeners. I'm Kathy Fang with Below the Radar, a knowledge democracy podcast. Below the Radar is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. On this episode of Below the Radar, our host Amjo Hall is joined by Alberto Toscano, a critical theorist and term research associate professor with the Digital Democracy Institute in SFU's School of Communication. He is also the writer of the book Late Fascism, Race, Capitalism, and the Politics of Crisis, which will be available in the fall of 2023 from Verso Books. In this episode, Alberto traces the emergence of critical theory, explores manifestations of fascism through the work of racialized theorists, and discusses imagined white annihilation and victimization as a predicator for far-right movements in the U.S. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Welcome to Below the Radar. We have a special guest with us today, Alberto Toscano. Welcome, Alberto. Thank you. I wonder if we can begin with you introducing yourself uh, a little bit. So uh, I teach at uh, the School of Communication. I've been teaching for a couple of years, first in a visiting and now in a research term position. And before that, I was at uh, Goldsmiths, University of London, in the sociology department and uh, co-directing a Center for Philosophy and Critical Thought, which I still run. And um, in general, my work sort of concerns political and social theory and traditions of Marxist and critical philosophy with a focus on their relevance to contemporary social issues and conflicts. And uh, you've been a guest on our podcast before, but I've, of course, first ran into your work as a translator of Elaine Badu's work mm-hmm. because I was doing some work on there related to my dissertation and read your book on fanaticism and another book you did with a colleague of yours, Cartographies of the Absolute. And you've continued to do a lot of translation work as well. I'm wondering if you can speak to your current interests in fascism. So... The interest in fascism, I suppose, is a long-term interest, sort of inevitable if you're (laughs) interested in or working in critical theory and also concerned with mapping and if possibly reactualizing the legacies of radical and, and revolutionary movements of the 20th century, which often were either quashed or uh, in any case had to confront various forms of authoritarian or fascist movements. And of course, those movements were often born by way of reaction or or counter-revolution, right? Hmm. And of course, critical theory, in a sense, is nothing if not the theory of fascism. I mean, that, that I suppose is the quickest version, though, of course, when you're talking about the relevance of critical theory to neoliberal uh, representative democracies, you may need a few steps to show why that would be of interest, to, to remember that when uh, the very idea of critical theory was first forged in the late 1920s and 30s, it was really in that context, right? The context first of the emergence of fascism, the emergence of national socialism in Germany in particular, then the context of the defeat of the left and defeat of socialist and communist forces, and further to that, the whole question of the afterlives of fascism or the continuation of the potentials or the elements of fascism after its seeming defeat on the battlefields of Europe and elsewhere. And so that, I suppose, is one of the sources of wanting to study 
Fascism, and to really return to a whole set of theoretical debates on fascism, not just from the 20s and 30s, but from the 1960s and 70s, and more recently, to try to get some purchase, some orientation on contemporary political developments. And I suppose the strongest motivation, in a sense, is a kind of critical, maybe at times even a polemical one, which is that even though fascism is now a topic of discussion in very mainstream media domains, uh, people fulminate against fascism on CNN or MSNBC. Biden recently started talking about the GOP's semi-fascism, possibly not realizing it was a technical concept amongst American communists in the 1930s and 40s. Um, but I think a lot of those debates are really hamstrung by a very stereotypical or very truncated conception of what historical or interwar or classical fascisms were, and also an inability to think about the relations between the phenomenon of fascism in its most obvious and catastrophic manifestations, and both its precursors and its prolongations, right, after World War II. And so that is one of my concerns in this work, is really not just to critically revisit the debates about interwar fascism and how we understand them, so the kind of theories or critical theories that pertain to them, but also to try to think about the ways in which elements of fascism are seeded in, especially in colonial uh, settings, all the way back to the into the 19th century, and the way that they prolong themselves into, for instance, neoliberal political formations that might not have the evident signs or, or symptoms of fascism, at least at first sight. Mm -hmm. I was going to start a little bit with the piece that you did with Sidecar recently and wondering if you can speak a little bit to that article. So the prompt for the piece on Sidecar was a very unfortunate or um, unhappy anniversary, which was the centenary of uh, the March on Rome, which led in uh, October of 1922 to the ascension of Mussolini and the fascist party to power in, in Italy. Alas, uh, a grim anniversary because it was a cause of some considerable celebration amongst the inheritors of fascism, not least the supporters of the current Italian Prime Minister, Giorgio Meloni, who comes very much firmly from that tradition. But I thought it was also a good occasion, this uh, awful 100th birthday, to reflect on what might be some of the limitations or maybe some of the common places that we might want to revisit in our understanding of fascism. So not just to question making analogies with the 1920s and 30s, but to ask ourselves if we really understand those phenomena in their multiple dimensions, right? And one of the things that I wanted to bring out in that piece was the extent to which the association that we make between fascism and a state that controls economic life, a, so to speak, totalitarian state that more or less is associated with a planned economy, with corporatism, 
with the effort to, you know, quash class struggles by uniting bosses and workers and so on and so forth. Uh, that image is an image that doesn't really work for the initial uh, formations of fascism. And certainly, I guess that's one of the things that I do in the piece, if you look at the speeches by Mussolini from 1921, 1922, on the eve or the immediate aftermath of the March on Rome, you see a very different conception of the state than the one that we would be prone to associate with fascism. And certainly with fascism as a, as a full-blown state regime in the later 1920s, which indeed made massive inroads into the organization of economic life in Italy. So in those speeches, one of the things that Mussolini does is to place fascism on the side of what he himself calls economic liberalism, and therefore argues, or rather argument not being particularly fascist activity, um, states, <laughs> affirms uh, that the purpose of the fascist movement is to take the state out of large swathes of economic life. He mentions, for instance, that the fascist state will not be a state that occupies itself with railroads, will not be a state that occupies itself with uh, the health system, and indeed even go so far as saying, well, perhaps we will even take the state out of education, you know, altogether, right? So moves that we would associate with <laughs> forms of rather extreme neoliberalism are there at the beginning. Now, it's very true that then that's not what happens to fascism as a state regime in the later 1920s and early 1930s, but I think it's very significant to reflect on the fact that statism understood in terms of planning and control of the economy is not, so to speak, in the DNA of fascism necessarily, right? And it's something that develops for a whole host of reasons, not least the need to deal with a modern mass society and to rest of working and middle classes that require welfare and so on and so forth. Yeah, so that, that struck me as worth recalling. And worth recalling that there is, of course, at the origins of fascism, a phenomenon of uh, social and, and political violence, a celebration, even an idealization of violence in all of its kind of virile, martial, post-World War I forms. But there is also the desire to place that violence, seemingly unreally violence, on the side of a certain idea of economic life, which at that time, 1921-22, is pretty classically liberal, at least as economic liberalism was understood by uh, politicians and economists in early 20th century Italy. Uh, in the piece, you talk about Mussolini's reading of Sorel's work, Reflections on Violence. I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to that work and its um, sort of entanglement or relation to what became a kind of fascist orientation. Yes, Sorel is a fascinating and perplexing figure whose role in that political moment or at least whose role, even in, in the 1910s, not just in the 1920s in Italy, was very significant. More significant, arguably, than in his home country of France. 
Sorel was uh, first uh, very significant in Italy as a participant in what were debates around so-called Marxist revisionism or the revision of Marxism, which involved uh, Sorel with figures like the Italian Marxist Antonio Labriola or indeed his uh, friend and for a while kind of intellectual supporter Benedetto Croce, the liberal philosopher. And uh, Sorel then became extremely significant to the emergence of the so-called syndicalist or anarcho-syndicalist or socialist syndicalist movement in Italy between, say, 1903 and, and kind of 19, 1910. He was a peculiar figure who, in fact, only began to be a, a writer, intellectual theorist in his mid-40s after having worked as a civil engineer for the French uh, state. And actually, the propensity of his ideas to attract people from very seemingly disparate sides of the political spectrum was very evident quite quickly. And, and he was also you know, quite volatile or mercurial in his associations, right? So moving from anarcho-syndicalism to associations with hyper-nationalist and even anti-Semitic French right in the 1910s, simultaneously welcoming the fascist movement and the Bolshevik revolution, writing pans to both Lenin and Mussolini. And his death, for instance, was met with uh, obituaries um, that not necessarily celebrated, but, you know, praised his significance as an intellectual figure, both in the communist journal L'Ordine Nuovo, run by Gramsci, Togliatti, and, and Tasca, and in Gerarchia, which is hierarchy, the, the journal of the fascists. So he's an extremely tricky figure without even going into then influence on aspects of uh, critical theory itself, right? So Sorrell plays a very uh, prominent role in Walter Benjamin's essay on the critique of violence, for instance. And so he's a kind of uh, crucial, if uh, very slippery, reference for all forms of political and theoretical radicalism, right, in, in, in the 1910s and 20s, in part because of an emphasis on what could be seen as a kind of revolutionary voluntarism, so a kind of centrality of, of will and, and action, fierce critique of liberalism, of parliamentary liberalism in particular. So elements that would have in different ways resonated with far left and far right figures um, as well. The aspect of Sorel's writing, which was most attractive to fascists, of course, remembering that Mussolini, of course, had, had uh, encountered Sorel as a socialist and in fact, as a left wing or radical socialist himself, right, in the early 1910s. Um, but the aspect that really resonated with the fascist Mussolini or with fascists more broadly was the uh, reference to the centrality of myth in politics, right, to the, the centrality of, of myths as I think the term that Sorel uses, which I think is taken from the philosopher Henri Bergson, is as blocks of images that will somehow energize or catalyze a kind of creative revolutionary spontaneity, right? And, and so in Reflections on Violence, which is written firmly in Sorel's syndicalist and kind of revolutionary syndicalist period, 
The myth is a myth of the general strike. Of course, the general strike then is the object of Walter Benjamin's um, uh, reflections in the critique of violence. The myth for Mussolini is a nation, right? That's the the virile, martial nation at, uh, at war. And one of the aspects of that reference to myth, certainly in a figure like Mussolini, it's of, often explicitly, you could say even kind of cynical in the way that it's put forward, right? It's basically saying, well, a myth is needed. It's not some sort of surreptitious, subliminal, manipulative propaganda. It's almost a statement that, you know, we are forging a myth because it's only through a myth that we will be able to mobilize uh, mass political energies. The argument is almost, well, there isn't a nation yet, right? We will make the nation with a myth and the myth will gain in substance with mass politics and, and indeed, you know, mass uh, uh, violence, right? And that's uh, maybe as a kind of afterthought of sorts, but that's the, the very interesting and subtle irony of Walter Benjamin's use of Sorel is that Walter Benjamin centers the figure of the general strike in his critique of violence, but places a general strike against what he calls mythic violence, right? So actually for Benjamin, the general strike is not a myth, right? It's a form of praxis, let's say, whose object in a sense is to undermine <laughs> forms of myth in the political realm. So it's a it's an extremely uh, subversive, let's say, use of Sorel on his part. Now, one of the things around uh, the way people perceive fascism uh, is sort of around this role of the state or the one-party state. But in, in, in your article, you parse out kind of uh, the way through Mussolini's speeches, as you mentioned earlier, that this relation to the state is quite interesting. It's it's more complicated than the way it gets uh, sometimes um, presented. And uh, wondering if you can speak through this sort of the notion of the role of the state or what you uh, later you're referencing, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, who uses this term, the anti-state state. Yeah, so Gilmore uses that term, of course, in an analysis of the racial and spatial politics of neoliberalism. My suggestion, I suppose, was that there's elements, certainly of early Italian fascism, as evidenced by those speeches by Mussolini, that would suggest that we could speak of a certain moment of fascism or a certain figure of fascism as that of an anti-state state. In Gilmore's formulation, the anti-state state is a state that grows through the promise of its shrinkage, right? that grows in its apparatuses of violence, in its capacities for repression, in its control of social infrastructure by claiming, advertising its own retreat from the state. And that is very evident, right? That move is, I think, is very evident in Mussolini's speeches. Notwithstanding the fact that, you know, by the early 1930s, when he writes with the philosopher Giovanni Gentile, this famous encyclopedia entry on the doctrine of fascism, or Gentile sort of ghost writes it for him. The idea of the state, of course, looms large, the so-called ethical state, the statements that, you know, nothing against the state, nothing outside the state, everything within the state, you know, all of that then becomes synonymous with fascism. And so in that sense, it's not surprising that our 
commonsensical or received notion of fascism is as this totalitarian hyperstatist form. My suggestion, hypothesis, I suppose, is that if we want to reflect on the relevance, both of the category of fascism, but also of theories of fascism to the moment that we find ourselves in, then it might be useful to turn our attention to those moments when fascism was not simply identified, right, with this monolithic figure of the state. And we can also find those, albeit in a very different vein, I think that in those speeches by Mussolini, in aspects of national socialism and, and in theories of Nazism as well, right? So one of the authors who I think is extremely interesting in terms of his analysis of the structure of power in the Third Reich is the theorist and, and critical theorist and critical legal theorist, I suppose, Franz Neumann, who in his book Behemoth actually argues that what national socialism generated was what he calls a non-state state. So that ultimately it was the Nazi movement and the Nazi party that treated the state, the state bureaucracy, state capacities as an instrument for racial and power projects that were not contained by the state. And in fact, Neumann, already in 1942, uses this insight to argue for why his, uh, I can't remember if Neumann himself was taught by Carl Schmitt, I think Kirschheimer was of the critical theorists, but in any case, Neumann knew Schmitt quite well during the Weimar period. And he argues in Behemoth that, you know, Schmitt falls out with the Nazi establishment or aspects thereof, in part because he is a kind of state fetishist, right? And that instead other figures, especially amongst jurists or legal intellectuals in Nazi Germany, become central to the regime in part because they find ways of arguing that what Nazism is creating is something other than a state as classically understood, right? By, by Western political theory or by legal theory. And it's in that context that Neumann, of course, advances his idea that Nazism does not create a Leviathan, right? But creates a behemoth, right? Which a behemoth being the, the mythical figure for Hobbes of civil war. And in fact, for Neumann, then the Nazi state is a state which is not only, um, can only exist through endless, brutal wars of conquest, but it's also a state that's in a permanent internal state of civil war, right? Because actually, it doesn't really have any principles of stability or cohesion other than those of this kind of expansive racial terror and conquest. And so he depicts the Nazi state as one in which various groups, industrialists, the SS, the army, the party, are kind of constantly at war with each other, right? The state, in a sense, no longer mediates conflicts properly, but just becomes a kind of arena of these rackets, in a sense, right? And then Hitler has the role of, of sort of mediating between these bodies and, and giving this impression of um, seamless cohesion. But in fact, it's a completely uh, internally antagonistic and uh, formation, also in which political power directly translates into 
economic power, right, into into plunder of resources and so on and so forth. So I think whether it's looking at early Italian fascism and its contiguities or affinities with a certain kind of anti-democratic economic liberalism or looking at the ways in which the Nazi state was not simply the apotheosis of the modern Western state, but perhaps also its implosion. All of those might allow us maybe to take some distance from those notions of fascism as inevitably associated with a kind of monolithic state, which I think end up being a blockage or a hindrance to thinking about the present as well. Yes, that fascism as well, like there is a kind of the takeover of the state apparatus is always presented in a particular way. But you're right that it's it's not as an insurrection, but by invitation by sovereign authorities or a kind of civil war for economic liberalism or even it's even the takeover of state is sometimes done in particular ways that is not an insurrection. In fact, mm -hmm. uh, it happens through the existing structures of the state before the laws are overturned or suspended. Uh, wondering if you can speak to that a little bit. Yeah, I think because of fascism's association with political violence and because indeed it itself celebrates and identifies itself with political violence. We often think of fascism as synonymous, right? With, with a violent takeover of power. Of course, many people will and do remind us, including in very mainstream fora, that fascism came to power, quote unquote, democratically, right? So that's also a common reminder, right? Because it's also a warning that there might not be jackboots or tanks in the street and there might still be an infiltration of uh, political power by fascist forces. The reality, at least in, in Germany and Italy, falls somewhere in between, right? So you have a combination of street or Street violence is perhaps a euphemistic way of putting it, right? But, you know, of, of mass organized militia-like violence that serves to affirm what is almost a kind of dual power already, right? So the, the fascists are already able in Italy in 1920 and 21 through the phenomenon of um, organized political violence or squadrismo or the use of these kind of squads that descend on workers' cooperatives, on uh, socialist city administrations and the like to dismantle and destroy them, shows that it already has, that the monopoly of power of the state has already largely been undermined. And of course, as with most cases of fascism, including the creeping forms of the present, large swathes of the so-called repressive state apparatus, police, army, etc., are already you know, porous vis-a-vis <laughs> -vis these fascist movements. But the, and this is very evident in the March on Rome as a kind of classic case, that form of organized political violence does not directly take power, right? It instead exerts a kind of spectacular pressure that creates the conditions, or in a sense kind of the excuses or the opportunity for reactionary conservative and nationalist but non-fascist forces amongst um, governing and uh, business elites to opt for this solution to ongoing crisis, right? 
And therefore, Mussolini is, uh, in, in the Italian instance, invited by the king to take the position of prime minister. Even though, of course, in terms of political representation, in terms of votes, Italian fascists have nothing close to the, a, a percentage of votes that would make them even the leading force in a kind of right-wing or nationalist formation. They'd participated in some coalition governments, etc. And perhaps more complicated, but also in the case of Nazi Germany, that's also the phenomenon, right? Hitler is invited to take the chancellorship without having in any straightforward way won the elections. In fact, as people know, the Nazis had peaked in terms of their electoral support earlier, right, than, than 33. And so then what becomes crucial to think through is that social political coalition that of, you know, centrist liberals and nationalists and conservatives that find it expeditious to rely on this openly violent, seemingly revolutionary and anti-statist movement to shore up, right, a power that they feel uh, is at risk. And then, of course, the dynamics that follow are quite different. You know, in the case of Italy, for instance, the formation of a kind of one-party state takes some time, right? Uh, not, you know, fully in place until the later 20s. Um, in the Nazi case, it's extremely accelerated, right? And there's various reasons why that can be uh, explained. So I think that, yeah, it's an important, uh, important phenomenon, right? Because it suggests that we should be careful about this image of the fascist coup, right? As the way in which fascism comes to power, right? And that perhaps political violence has other roles, right? And, and there's more of a of a dialectic between between the street violence and the institutional power, and and if anything, one could say that you know Mussolini, partly from having been a journalist and propagandist, and also a socialist politician long before he was a fascist, was very tactically and strategically adept at playing these registers, right, at using the threat of violence to make possible a smooth entrance into into power right what the king does in fact in italy is to basically not sign a state of emergency that would allow the army which was perfectly capable of doing whether it would have done it is a different matter given its sympathies but it's it's that um, omission right that then makes it possible for Mussolini to come to power and then for the march itself to be seen as this, you know, triumphant. Well, in fact, it was actually a much less grandiose event, not least because famously Mussolini was waiting in Milan, quite close to a train station, to be able to take a train straight to Switzerland or go into exile if the whole thing were going to fail, right? So showing a certain opportunism there as well. I wanted to um, go into your piece in the Boston Review, which looks more at American currents of fascism and in the way that fascism oftentimes is evoked. The European example is the one that's given that, in fact, there's strains of this that have different histories, different orientations, and particularly in a kind of racialized form of state ter terror and apparatus that 
has historically been in place in the States. So I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to where that article started for you and, and some of the key thinkers and in periods that can help us think that through. So I've been conscious for some time of strain of anti-fascist theorizing emerging from both anti-colonial and black radical movements. Uh, had encountered it in Du Bois, in M. Césaire's discourse on colonialism, in the writings of C.L.R. James. I'd never necessarily thought of it as a single seam or tradition, but I'd been you know, aware that this was, of course, and unsurprisingly so, a concern of these theorists. In coming to work in a more concerted way on the problem of fascism in the present, it struck me that in wanting to resist this obsession with analogies with the 1920s and 30s and kind of checklists, right? Uh, checklists or, uh, you know, steps towards fascism, right? Which all took... There was a lot of those. A lot of those, yeah. Uh, still are. 1920s and 30s as the model, right? You know, so has this happened already? You know, you're in stage three or in stage five or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I think the importance, I mean, there's an importance in its own right because they're just brilliant theorists, but also the importance now of uh, figures like Césaire and Du Bois and later on Angela Davis, George Jackson and others is to undo this normative model across a number of different axes. So one is to suggests something that Du Bois does in Black Reconstruction in America and which Amiri Baraka points to in writing on Du Bois, which is to see the formations of racial terror in the U.S. South, especially not really in the plantocracy, so to speak, but actually in what Du Bois calls the counter-revolution of property and the reaction against Reconstruction as forms of what Du Bois in passing calls racial fascism, right? And so that's one element, right? To see that fascism has a, has a longer history than when it takes the name of fascism explicitly. And that those racial and settler colonial formations of proto or pre or racial fascism are both worthy of critical and theoretical attention to themselves, but are also indispensable if we really want to understand both classical fascisms and contemporary rebirths or mutations, right, of fascist politics. A second perspective that I draw from this work, and I think it's also very nicely synthesized in some short essays on fascism by Cedric Robinson and about the specificity of black radical theories of fascism, is to argue that the identification of fascism emerges from specific social experiences of exploitation and repression, which are in turn racialized as well as gendered, which we could discuss you know, together and separately. 
to this issue. And in that sense, the writings of Angela Davis and uh, George Jackson in the early 1970s or late 60s and early 1970s around the specificity of the experience of black political prisoners and the reality of these you know, law and order and incarceration campaigns that define the US state, these are experiences that point to the fact that the same society might be fascist for some and not for others, right? And Davis makes this very explicit. He says, well, she says, there's already fascist modalities of rule and repression and terror that are taking place in the United States in the late 1960s and early 70s, and obviously we could say into the present, which swathes of the population who are not affected by them do not consider to be, right? Do not see as fascist, but that nevertheless are also seeds or even kind of laboratories for politics that might and forms of repression and government that might affect the broader populations and not solely along racialized lines further down the road, right? And I guess third and, and last, we could also say, so not just that fascism has this kind of racial long durée that is like long before the European 1920s and 30s and it has to do with colonialism, settler colonialism and empire, that there is a differential experience of fascism, but also that fascism, certainly in its North American forms, is not just a counter-revolutionary or preventive counter-revolutionary force, but it's one which is explicitly responding to the threat posed to a white supremacist order by uh, liberation movements of racialized people, right? So that if we want to understand what fascism means in the wake of civil rights and black liberation struggles, then we have to see it in the specificity of its response and not just like as a kind of abstract generic way in which capitalism deals with its abstract and generic contradictions and crises, right? You reference uh, Césaire's um, term, the sort of boomerang effect of European colonialism and its link back to kind of specificities of fascism or authoritarianism. I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to that. I think Césaire has probably the most, uh, I mean, not least because he's such a splendid and incisive writer, but probably has in discourse on colonialism some of the most um, effective formulations of the idea that the fascism that we often misperceive as an intra-European phenomenon is constitutively linked to the histories of colony and empire, and that it is in many ways a return or a projection of racial regimes and forms of political and military and genocidal violence that are uh, firmly established and practiced outside of the so-called metropole that under the condition of global capitalist crisis of the 20s and 30s then you know return so to speak to european soil and there's somewhat analogous if i if actually in some ways not 
comparable formulations of this also in some writings by the Marxist Karl Korsch and also by Hannah Arendt in Origins of Totalitarianism. The, her formulation is rather problematic for a number of reasons having to do with her own, so to speak, racial imaginary, which is a bit overdetermined by Heart of Darkness and Joseph Conrad and so on and so forth. Now, I think Césaire's insight is extremely significant and has been extremely significant for a lot of theorists of contemporary fascism. And for those listeners interested in this, I would just recommend they look at least at first at, uh, at Robin Kelly's introduction to the new edition of, of Discourse on Colonialism. I think it's perhaps also worth qualifying the idea of the boomerang, right? It's worth qualifying, one, maybe through exploring the idea that Europe already manifested forms of what Cedric Robinson called racial capitalism, right? Differentiations and repressions of its own, own so to speak, laboring population on, uh, on axes of difference and so on, right? So the history of Europe is also the history of all forms of racially framed repression and violence in forms of internal colonialism, in histories of anti-Semitic and anti-Roma uh, repression and persecution. So in some sense, it's not just that there is this kind of homogeneous European history and then these awful things are done in the colonies and then they return, right? You, you kind of have to follow the whole circuit, right? Things are also done in colonial spaces that had already been, you know, practiced and perfected against internal ethno-racial minorities and against laboring classes and, you know, dispossessed and subalternized people within Europe itself, right? And I think we have to be careful also, right, of these kind of homogeneous, anachronistic notions, right, of this kind of homogeneous white continent or whatever, right? You know, just as, you know, we can learn a lot from, you know, what the British practice in Ireland first and then exported uh, to other settler colonial contexts, right? So it's, it all kind of has to do with, yeah, how we configure this idea of Europe in part. So that's one, one issue. I think the boomerang should not be taken as too linear, right? Or too unilateral kind of a, a metaphor. And then I also think we could qualify Césaire's point... And this really has to do with histories of settler colonialism specifically by emphasizing how much the settler colonial practices, juridical practices, for instance, and imaginaries played a critical role in the formations of European fascism, right? It's no secret that the... East plan of the Nazis was basically their own version of a kind of manifest destiny, right? That they constantly fantasized their own genocidal and territorial practices with a kind of North American model in mind, right? And this was also true at the very technical juridical levels. So very early on in the emergence of the Nazi state, in the planning of racial laws, Nazi jurists were studying quite assiduously 
racially exclusive and hierarchizing legislation applied to African Americans and Native Americans in the States, right? And initially, in fact, they, which of course in retrospect is surprising, but initially they thought that Jim Crow laws were too extreme to be able to implement, right, on the European continent. But one thing that became really crucial was modeling initial racial laws on uh, Indian laws in the U.S., right? And uh, there's a really fascinating book by uh, an author called James Whitman called Hitler's American Model, precisely on this, on the question of, of racial laws and their kind of settler colonial models. And Indian laws were fascinating for these racist Nazi jurists because they permitted the possibility of having nationals who weren't citizens, right? It was all about the the stripping of citizenship and the creation, right, of all sorts of racialized and subordinate populations. So that's another sense, right, in which, yeah, it's not just a kind of boomerang because it's not just about what European powers, France, Britain, Germany, Italy, did in their colonial and imperial outposts and ventures, but also very much what settler colonies, what European settler colonies outside of Europe did as a model, right? So while, and you know, there's a lot of very interesting historical discussion, right, about, for instance, how many key figures in Nazism or ideologues or military practitioners drew on the experiences, for instance, of the genocide carried out on the Herero people in the early part of the century by Germany and, and so on and so forth. But I think there's almost an even stronger claim or even maybe perhaps even a more precise or specific claim than the boomerang to say that maybe not European fascism as a whole, but certainly national socialism is in a fairly uncontroversial way the idea that you could be a settler colony like inside so-called European space, right? And in many ways, it imagines itself in that mode, right? Like the whole idea of Lebensraum or living space is very much an artifact, right, of that of that model and that imaginary. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, in talking about or evoking these American sort of strains of fascism, authoritarian, whatever word we want to use, that there are these sort of echoes and differences with European uh, fascism, as you write, and, and you talked about before as kind of a form of preventive counter-reform or um, racial fascism as a response to abolition democracy, an attempt to contain political movements from asserting rights or gaining rights in some kind of way. Wondering in in looking at um, you know I have friends who live for example in Florida or Ohio and these governments are bringing in uh, you know under DeSantos um, you know, critiques of um, their Stop Woke Act to all of these things or you have to as a professor um, list your political views and I think they were attempting to do it in Ohio and most people are like there's no way they can actually follow that it's a bit of a joke people aren't taking it seriously. But in, in many of the places where these kinds of laws were enacted in other places, it, 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 Mussolini was kind of a joke for a bunch of people at the beginning, as was Hitler 
and in some cases the absurdity of it all as it rolls out that there is a kind of tenure to these places when they actually, you know, for example, can appoint <laughs> Supreme Court justices that can shift and change the laws very quickly. And wondering, you know, what these American specificities of how this rolls out and how we can think it. Yeah, just this uh, morning I saw the Virginia Department of Education revised their history high school curriculum to remove all mentions of fascism. This was an actual item. They did so in a particularly gormless way because they actually left the gaps in the text. So the sentences became kind of nonsensical. It was like, you know, dictatorship and blank. Yeah, it was Japanese militarism and Italian fascism. So they removed the militarism and fascism from the curricula. So there's that too. I think it's tricky. Uh, I found it challenging, right, to think through, even theorize both at the political strategic level, but also, I suppose, at the quasi-psychoanalytic one, what this sheer overkill, right, of ideological, cultural warfare signals, right? I use the term preventive counter-reform in uh, the piece I wrote as a way of marking both the continuities and the differences from the moment that Marcuse and Angela Davis were responding to in the late 60s and 70s, right? I said, okay, if there is a US fascism, then it's not a fascism that takes place in the context of or the wake of revolutionary or insurrectionary situations, it takes place in anticipation of and to preemptively undermine the possibility of the emergence of a threat to orders of property and privilege, right? I said preventive counter-reform because it seemed to me that the situation that we find ourselves in, alas, is even less <laughs> laden with imminent emancipatory revolutionary potentials, right, than the one of the 1970s. And so in a way when, uh, you know, these in some ways completely grotesque and bizarre legislative drives are carried out, for instance, to try to remove the teaching of critical race theory from elementary schools where I don't think the works of Kimberly Crenshaw are discussed at great length. You know, this kind of <laughs> everything is critical race theory. Uh, mentioning the existence of slavery is critical race theory, right? It's critical. It talks about race and somehow anything that involves thought is treated as the theory itself. Actually, you could almost say is become this kind of quasi-racialized word in the States, right? Like theory is what awful leftists who want to destroy Western white civilization or something do, right? Just by, by definition. So that's why I think, yeah, I use the term preventive counter-reform. Now, um, in doing that, I don't want to, yeah, belittle the discursive struggles, right? Very significant discursive struggles in some way have played out across, especially across the United States for all of their ambivalence, right? So you find 
self-avowed radical abolitionist writing op-eds for the New York Times, which is surprising, which is, of course, still a you know, massively establishment, liberal right-wing paper, right? So it's not... And it's true that if you look at the whole debate around the advanced placement course, right, the most recent one in Florida, I was impressed by the curriculum. I was like, you know, we've done well. <laughs> you know, it's like, yay, yay for cultural Marxism, uh, right? Like, I thought, wow, you know, they have, you know, Robin Kelly and Kianga Yamata Taylor and an AP exam. Like, that's some, uh, that's some serious, some serious discursive struggle taking place, right? So, you know, and in one sense, like there's both an element of like grotesque overreach and like comical paranoia, but there's also the reality, right? There's a reality that people have engaged and, and people should like own up to, you know, should be proud of that, right? Like <laughs> it's an impressive achievement to get Floridian 18-year-olds to read abolitionist theory in, you know, state schools. Like that's great that they got even... To the point where they they were forced to then now, um, I think it was yesterday or something, I saw that they, they proposed the kind of redacted or revised course, right? And in a way, I think like, and I think a lot of people do, especially the abolitionists and radical thinkers just mentioned, you know, see this as a as a real discursive struggle. And therefore, there's nothing in a sense to be to be surprised by or kind of even to complain about this. Like, of course, they're going to do this because you are intentionally threatening the hegemony of their ridiculously regressive and harmful conception of the world, right? So, so that, you know, so in some sense, it's, you know, that there's both diversionary and instrumental notion of, you know, culture war, but there are also evidently very massive discursive conflicts that are very kind of consequential, right, in the United States and elsewhere. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if I have necessarily that much more to say about that issue in particular. Yeah, um, for those of you listening at home, Alberto is um, accepting speaking engagements in Florida. <laughs> uh, I wanted to see if you had anything else to add on the notion of American fascism. Is that the right term or should we be, are we talking about American authoritarianism? Mm -hmm, are mm -hmm. we talking about a kind of American fanaticism? Because I think sometimes people get caught up, uh, object to the term itself as a kind of overreach or an yeah. exaggeration to an American political kind of condition that's been amping up in a particular direction. Yeah, that I confess is one of the um, ambivalences I have in undertaking this whole project, right? I think it's crucial to think with theories and conceptions of fascism from different historical moments and coming from different intellectual and political traditions, also outside of Western or Atlantic context. I'm thinking of very extremely interesting debates on fascism, for instance, that took place in Japan in the 1930s and onward and so on. At the same time, I also worry about the pleasures of naming phenomena, right? As though in fixing the label one had done anything in particular, right? So that's in part why I'm more 
interested in those positions like those articulated by Angela Davis in the 70s, which were really to think about fascism as a process, right, as a dynamic, and to think through that instead of necessarily saying, okay, well, the Republican Party is, as Biden puts it, a semi-fascist party, which it is, but, you know, that's maybe not the most, it's not going to get one very far just to say that unless you can then articulate what you mean by it. I do think, though, that if we want to, yeah, if we want to grasp the specificity of this phenomenon, which I think we need those theories of fascism for, but we don't necessarily require the label in the end, because it might be distracting or, you know, then you might just get stuck. In, Is Trump a fascist or not a fascist, or etc.? But if we want to move in that direction, I was really um, taken recently by a very good book by a journalist called Brendan O'Connor called uh, Blood Red Lines on nativism in the far right in the U.S. And what I really liked about it, well, a couple of things. One was that unlike a lot of these studies or analyses, and unlike my own work, I must confess, it really gives a lot of granular detail about where the money's coming from. So there's really incisive and kind of forensic work on all of these foundations of the far right, and especially of the population-obsessed, anti-immigration, eugenicist far right that has been there, right, from, well, for a long time, but that really cohered also in the, in the 1970s as well, right? And together with that, emphasis on the kind of political economy, right, of far-right movements, which is very significant, showing actually how it is through these foundations that you can also draw connections between fractions of the Republican Party, Proud Boys, sundry different institutes of various stripes and anti-immigration websites and et cetera, et cetera, also shows how, despite the super fractious character of this nebula of far-right or proto-fascist or neo-fascist organizations in the U.S., which often seem to have irreconcilable differences, right? Uh, Christian nationalists, neocons, neoliberals, proud boys, neo-Nazis, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, that in the end they do cohere around this project, which he, I think, quite compellingly just calls border fascism, right? And that basically the defense of white homogeneity and privilege, albeit with some complicated caveats, because of course some of these supremacist groups are not actually entirely white, like the Proud Boys. But then nevertheless, the obsession with the border and the obsession with the, the threat of the suicide, decline, degradation of this white Western conception, white Western settler conception of the United States is the, the cement, but also what allows all of these groups to communicate and to cohere in many ways, notwithstanding that if you ask them about distinct issues like their economic vision or, you know, their conceptions of ecology or whatever, they might differ quite radically. And 
To which I think one could also add, which we haven't touched on, but I think is is really significant, the way in which a kind of gender panic, for want of a better word, is also extremely significant in bringing, again, seemingly disparate and incoherent groups in the far right, both mainstream, i.e. Republican Party and all of the grouplets and movements and institutes, etc., on its fringes together, right? And to bring those movements together with a whole post-fascist international, right? Which uses exactly the same discourse, especially when it comes to whether it's transphobia or the obsession with so-called gender ideology, etc., right? Uh, I saw the other day somebody had uploaded with subtitles a, a speech by the Syrian ruler Bashar al-Assad, and it was a speech about basically like gender ideology, which could have been given by Putin or by Trump or Bolsonaro, but I mean like literally, like there was no, I mean at that level, this is like a an extremely effective like point around which all of these groups cohere and circulate, right? It's like a kind of common currency almost. So I think that also has to be kept in mind, that not just in the North American context. And of course, you know, you could also say most fascist or proto-fascist or post-fascist or neo-fascist worldwide are also invariably border fascist as well. But there is, I think, something, you know, quite specific about that formation in the U.S., right? And about, this is also, I guess, linked to the gender issue, the fantasy of erasure or annihilation, right? Like the whole white genocide trope and how that is able to generate this kind of violently victimized subjectivity, right? Which reminds me of some of the insights in, well, both in Adorno and specifically in um, Leo Lovental and Norbert Guterman's book, Prophets of Deceit, this whole idea of mimesis, right? That the racist with genocidal propensities always projects, right? Those desires onto another that it's like they want to get rid of us, right? Like that mode, which is always a kind of a vowel, right? A kind of confession that that's your desire, right? You're, where you're constantly obsessed with the idea that everyone is uh, scheming for your own elimination. That might be, say more about, or much more, about your own inclinations and about you know, the social reality that, that surrounds you. And of course, that plays out on the gender dimension as well, right? Like the end of sexual difference, the end of masculinity, the end of women, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Also has that kind of structure, authoritarian personality structure. Thank you so much, Alberto, for joining us on uh, Below the Radar. Well, thank you, Em. Below the Radar is a knowledge democracy podcast created by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. Thanks for listening to this episode with Alberto Toscano. Head to the show notes below to learn more about books by Alberto, such as Late Fascism, Race, Capitalism, and the Politics of Crisis, and other mentioned resources. You can follow us on social media at SFU underscore V-O-C-E to keep up to date on new podcast releases. Thanks again for listening and we'll catch you next time on Below the Radar. Bye.